I saw an interesting article uh, being talked about this week on a on a news show, and the the commentator uh, who who is who's conservative in a in a way was talking about this article. And the article is talking about young men who are of prime childbearing age, and the article describes these young men of childbearing age as being in a situation where they are child free. And what this, this article is talking about is that they, they were surveying or something like that, these young men, and found that they're increasingly getting vasectomies and getting neuters so that they never have to be anything but child-free. And, and the commentator was talking about it. The way they're talking about being child-free is like how you describe a patient who's cancer-free. Like children are a burden to be avoided. And it's just, it's really not that shocking of an article in the grand scheme of the things that are going on in our culture. But it was a clear reminder there are many people in, in our country, even in our community, who hate God, who hate life, and who hate children. It takes a hatred of God and life and children to few children as such a burden that you need to be free of them. As I was considering that, I consider those who are standing for truth, who are standing proclaiming what God has said, that they're they're speaking good news in this to this lost and dying world, and I look down of these people who are standing for what is true, and many of them are Presbyterians and Pado Baptists that I love dearly. They are our brothers, and I, and I love them dearly, and I and I have the utmost respect for so many of them. And I mentioned this last week, and I just want to reiterate it. It's not the sort of uh, patronizing sort of respect where I respect them as someone I can look down on, but ultimately I look down on them. No, I look up to many of these brothers. They've done a lot to, to edify and encourage me. They've been a grace and gift of God to me. And so I, I just want to express at the outset, we're going to be discussing baptism this morning, but the differences we have between us and our Reformed Presbyterian brothers, it, it is a difference that matters, but it does not separate our brotherhood. I'm thankful for that. And so, that being said, we do need to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And in the context of Matthew 28, where that phrase is coming from, the first thing you do in that obedience is baptism. So, it's discuss, and we're going to be discussing it because of the import of what we just studied from Deuteronomy 10. Uh, we have just come from 10, the statement, circumcised this, be no longer suffer. And what's important about that verse for understanding baptism is that what we're seeing is that the fulfillment of circumcision from most words is what's going to happen in the hearts of God's people. Most willing is that. So what part of what intending is that the that baptism is not indeed the fulfillment of circumcision. The heart circ circumcision is the fulfillment of circumcision. So, uh, to define some terms, when we talk about pedo-baptists, you could think of the word uh, pediatrician. Pediatrician is a doctor to children. Pedo-baptism is baptizing your babies. Credo-baptists, which is what we would be here at Covenant, is, is relating to believer's baptism. You believe in a creed or confession. It is what you state that you believe. So, credo-baptism is a believer's baptism. So when we're looking at this topic, it's it's I'll, I'm going to admit up front, it's not an easy topic. It, it requires a lot of thought and consideration. And what I want to encourage us to consider, though, is that we believe in sola scriptura. So we believe that scripture is alone, the standard of what is true. So when we look at this topic, we have to be relentlessly focused on what the text says. And, and it cannot be a, 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 navigate, a navigation of logic. Not what makes most sense to us. It is what is the text saying before us. And this is good practice for every sort of relationship we have. Because whether it's a Presbyterian and a Baptist, whether it's a husband and a wife, a parent and a child, or members within this own church, we're always going to have things that we disagree on. It's good practice to learn how to disagree and to disagree convictional. So with that being said, I'm going to say um, various things about baptism this week and then Likely next week as well. We'll see if it goes any more weeks than that. I'm not making any promises at this point. Um, but all that to say, we have different different conclusions and consciences on this topic. I don't want this to be the last word. I think it would be good for us to continue talking about it as needed. But that's 
preach the text and what I think is there. And this is going to be an abnormal sermon. We typically just go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. Um, so this, this is going to be a more topical sermon. But what I'm hoping to achieve within this topical sermon is to simply just exposit different texts. I'm going to try to focus on what has God said in this text. And so it will be topical, but I'm not trying to say what I want to say. I'm trying to topically show what God has said on this issue. So the main point I'm going to aim at conveying here is that baptism symbolizes the glorious reality of conversion. Baptism symbolizes the glorious reality of conversion. Like I said, the, the platform that has brought us to this point of doing a topical sermon where we're discussing our conclusions on baptism has been what Deuteronomy 10. He's showing us what the fulfillment of circumcision is and that it is a matter of the heart that's ultimately the fulfillment of it. It is not baptism. So um, just to, to review a little bit of what we discussed last week, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The first and second greatest commands. Their hearts are not inclined to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. And in addition to that, they as themselves. So God, through my to love their neighbor as herself. And when we talked about... We discussed some of the symbolism associated with the idea of circumcision within the first five books of the Bible, within the Torah or the Pentateuch. And we talked about how Genesis 17 shows that circumcision is meant to convey covenant membership. A covenant membership and relationship with God necessitates perfect faithfulness. In addition to that, in Egypt, and as we saw... Feeding here uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13, talking about serving and keeping, uh, serving the Lord their God and keeping his commandments. Those are words that were associated with the priesthood. And in, in Egypt as well, priests and God's having all keep circumcision because they're all. The last thing we discussed with that was the, the idea that this is a sign on the reproductive organ of a man. And what that's conveying is that this is an anticipation of the man, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham coming to be what the He's going to be the one who is actually covenantally faithful because the people have not been. So my summarize, God is saying what happened to their hearts. They need the sinfulness of their flesh cut away and their hearts to be made new. But the circumcision word is conveying who's going to be able to do it. And that who is the offspring of the woman, their savior. That's coming. So given that context and what we're about to dive into, I want to start by just saying I've received a lot of help on this subject. Um, different scholars, some of the foremost that have helped me on this topic have been Tom Schreiner, Stephen Wellam, and I've listened to many of James White's. He has a whole series on baptism that I would commend. There's a lot that's really helpful there. And what I'm trying to offer here is just in a starter kit. There's a lot I've talked about and we will talk about this morning as well, but it's not going to be everything. Um, so I'm going to try to not plagiarize as best I can, but please forgive me if I do. And as I said earlier, it's good to let this be an ongoing conversation. I don't expect to be giving the final word on this topic. So um, even if we were to grant the idea that baptism is simply the new circumcision, if we were to grant that, which I don't, but if, let, let's say we do. Even if we did, we would all have to grant as well that there is change from circumcision to baptism. To illustrate, only men were circumcised. Baptism, men and women are baptized. When it came to circumcision, that was done on the eighth day. We don't have any such parameters when it comes to baptism. So we all have to grant some level of change from circumcision to baptism. What I'm contending is that there needs to be more change than is argued by our Pado baptist brothers. And, and I think this flows We have a better God's covenant people in Christ. We have a better access that's been achieved through his sacrifice of himself. And indeed, that has brought a new relationship with God. With 
that the sign in the New Covenant to be a better sign than what was there in the Old Covenant. And that's where I'm contending specifically that I think Scripture is showing us that baptism is a better sign because it is the realization of what was hoped for, not anticipating with uncertainty what is hoped for. Like we talked about last week, there was many who were circumcised in the flesh were proved to be very uncircumcised in their hearts. So what we're going to do, we're going to start circumcision in the New Testament, and I'm going to try We'll talk circumcision in the New Testament to begin, and then we'll shift and start looking at baptism in the New Testament. Uh, and we'll, we're not going to cover everything this morning, but what I'm going to try to do is look at baptism in the context of Matthew um, and, and try to stay in that one book to, to get some ideas from there about what God has to say about baptism. So to start, let's go over to Romans 2. And in Romans 2, we're going to be looking at the last two verses of the chapter. Here's what Paul writes. For no you who is merely one outwardly, nor is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul is showing us that to be part of, of this new covenant reality that is by the Spirit, not by the law, you have to have your heart circumcised. This is, he's saying that circumcision is a matter that finds its culmination specifically in heart circumcision. I'm trying to apply here what I think is a very basic hermeneutical principle, which is I think this is the most explicit text to show us what is the fulfillment of circumcision. And what Paul says here, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. He is saying the fulfillment of this idea is found in the heart. So this, I think, is essential to, to the thesis I offered earlier, which is that baptism is not just simply the new circumcision. The fulfillment of circumcision is heart circumcision. That's what I think Paul is laying out here plainly. So what Paul is saying here as well is that there is no covenant membership without it. He's showing that these Jews who are physically circumcised, if their hearts are not circumcised, have nothing to do with being part of God's people. They are not true Jews. They are not in covenant relationship with God. And this is an important note. If you look at the expanded context of what he's been saying in chapter 2 and going into chapter 3 as well, he's showing that what family they were born into does not matter for their covenant membership. And as a side note, this is where I think when we look at how we put our Bible together and we make conclusions about biblical theology, I think this is a very hard text to maintain from a paedo-baptist point of view. I also think it's a very hard text to maintain from a dispensational point of view. I think this is ushering us into a sort of Reformed Baptist perspective. True Jewness is found in heart circumcision, and that means you are born again. That's what it means to be a member of this new covenant. So, I, I think, regardless of, of one's conclusions about baptism, I think we can all agree that Romans is perhaps the most orderly explanation of Paul's gospel that we find in the New Testament. Or at least it's towards the top. Um, and so what, what that means is the ordering of the ideas means something. Why this is in chapter 2 is going to mean something. And to convey why I'm laying that out, let's go over to Romans chapter 6. And here where we're at in Romans chapter 6, we are at a point in Romans where Paul has very thoroughly conveyed the sinfulness and fallenness of humanity, and he's conveyed the grace that's come to God's people 
and the justification that's come to God's people through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that we receive by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's grace alone. He's laid all of that out. And now when we enter into Romans 6, we should understand this as being built on top of that foundation. And what does he say in Romans 6? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, Paul's laying out here that they should not, in light of their justification and salvation, continue in sin that grace may abound. No, in light of the reality of salvation, and in, in light of the baptism that proclaims that reality, they should walk accordingly. They should not continue in sin. They have died to sin. They were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. They are dead to sin. They have died to sin. Why? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Their baptism has shown the reality that they've been made a new creation. He's saying you don't continue in sin. You act like the new creation God has made you. Now, to, to convey the point, this, I think, is talking about literal water baptism. And, and why I would contend that has is built on the idea that we just saw in chapter 2. He's already laid out that it is through the reception of the Spirit and the circumcision of the heart that, that they already have. He, he says in verse 5 of chapter 5, he says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what he's showing is that they have already received spirit baptism, and now in light of that spirit baptism, they are baptized to show that God has given them this salvation. So if we want to see what baptism is most obviously calling back to, it's not circumcision, it's baptism of the Spirit, that they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You can see as well the idea here of dying to sin, having to be buried in a like manner with Christ also is going to be important for our understanding of immersion. To be buried necessitates a full submersion. And so that's going to come into play later. But what to, to just cap off what we're talking about here, he is saying that the reality of their salvation that's been laid out in 1 through 5, that's been testified to through their baptism, is the basis to say you shouldn't be sinning. You've said by your proclamation and by our baptism that you're saved, so act like it. So what we'll do now is go over to another text from Paul that looks at circumcision and baptism in really close proximity. So let's go over to Colossians 2. And this is perhaps one of the hardest texts because you do have in verse 11 a statement about circumcision that's followed immediately with a statement about baptism in verse 12 of Colossians 2. So I want us to take a look at it, and I'm hoping to argue that the natural understanding of what Paul's saying actually does not necessitate seeing baptism as the new circumcision. So I'll, I'm going to try to show you that that's not Paul's intent, hopefully by clear faithful exposition. So let's start in Colossians 2, verse 9. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So what he's saying to these, these Colossians is that they have been filled with Christ. They are complete in Christ. They're dealing with this false teaching, uh, this this these philosophical ideas that propagate this way of living in a, in a, in a, a form of legalism that, that essentially seeks to convey that Christ isn't sufficient. And Paul's point here is to say, no, you have everything you need in Christ. You are filled in him, and he is God. So 
This is the basis for what we're going to see that comes afterward. Verse 11 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sorry, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this there's some debate about verse 11. Um, what does it mean to to be what does the circumcision of Christ refer to? And what Paul has said, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. I think that's really helpful for us understanding what this is referring to. So to look at that immediate phrasing, what we can see is that Paul uses that idea of circumcision with hands to talk about literal circumcision in Philippians 3. You also see how with Christ... His death on the cross was, in Acts 2, at the hands of lawless men. So I think, given Paul's use of these words, that this idea of the circumcision of Christ is a circumcision without hands, it cannot be either a physical circumcision, nor could it be Christ's death on the cross. Both of these are done with hands, is what we see in the New Testament. So what does that leave us? I believe that leaves us only with heart circumcision. And you see that as well from what he says in verse 13. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So I think both in the broader context and the more immediate context, we have clues to show us that the circumcision of Christ from verse 11 is specifically the circumcision of heart that Christ does in us by the Spirit. So what that means is verse 11 is reflecting how we are filled how we are complete in Christ, as he just said in verses 9 and 10. We have received a heart circumcision to make us a new creation through Christ's work in us by the Spirit. And in light of that, verse 12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So it's argued that because of the proximity here of this idea of circumcision in verse 11, to baptism in verse 12, that therefore we should look at this connection between baptism and circumcision and see that they are uh, directly connected. And therefore what happens from that direct connection is we take the parameters of uh, household circumcision in Genesis 17 and apply those household standards onto baptism. And I don't think that's correct for a few reasons. One of them is what we just saw. I think the circumcision that we're talking about here is a heart circumcision. So the relationship between that and baptism necessitates regeneration. In addition, the baptism he's talking about here is a baptism of faith. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So when Paul's talking about baptism here, that idea of baptism necessitates a saving faith, which runs right in line with what we've already seen from the immediate context which is that you are filled in Christ. There is nothing lacking for this person. How is there nothing lacking? They've received heart circumcision. And they've testified to that reality through their baptism, proclaiming their faith in Christ by being going under the water, died to sin, coming out of the water, showing that they've been raised to walk in newness of life. And then Paul goes on to show even more about this glorious reality. He says in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How is it that they are filled in Christ? How is it that they have this heart circumcision? How is it that they have a faith that can proclaim they truly have been made a new creation? Because Christ has won the battle. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. All of Christ having won the victory. That's how you're filled in it. In addition to this, what, what's being said here about this, this victory and what, what Christ has done for his people, this is 
built on an idea as well from Colossians 1. So Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That idea of redemption being transferred from a domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, that's Exodus language. He's accomplished a new and better Exodus. And this transfer from death to life, you were dead in the, your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Egypt was a place of death. God brought you look through the Old Testament that, is, that talk about descending into Egypt. That's, dis, that's the same word for describing descending into Sheol. And you come up out of Egypt. It, it's a transfer from death to life. And so what we're seeing with Christ is his new and better exodus isn't just geographical, it's actual, it's spiritual, it's forever. You truly are no longer dead in your sins and trespasses. You are a new creation. You have eternal life already by the Spirit. So when we look at what Christ has accomplished and we look at the Exodus imagery that's here, the Exodus ideas that are here, we see how circumcision, which in Exodus 12, the people, before they come out, they have to be literally circumcised. But what comes after that is they pass through the waters of the Red Sea. And Paul makes a connection between that passing through the waters of the Red Sea in 1 Corinthians 10 with the idea of baptism. We will also discuss as we go forward a connection between baptism um, and not just the waters of the Red Sea, but also the waters at the flood. So when we think about baptism and water, we should be thinking about Old Testament, Old Testament precedents that include water. First and foremost, not circumcision. And the reason for that is because we have been made to drink of the living waters of the Spirit. So when we're, when we're thinking about baptism, it's reflective of the fact that we have the Spirit. That's what it's ultimately testifying to. We've been baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit's made us a new creation. And baptism, water baptism, is reflective of that Spirit baptism. Now, oftentimes when we're looking at passages like this, you see all these glorious realities packaged very tightly. And we want to be careful to not make every related reality the same reality. And why I'm saying that, this is where it can go really awry. And I'm not accusing my Pado baptist brothers of this. But part of the problem that you see in Roman Catholicism is a conflation between justification and sanctification. Are those related? Yes, they are. But we cannot treat them as the same thing or we run into very dangerous territory. And so my point there is simply to say that circumcision and baptism are related, but that does not mean that they are the same thing. So we've already talked about Romans 2 directly connecting circumcision, saying it's a matter ultimately of the heart. We talked about 1 Corinthians 10 using the passing through the waters of the Red Sea as a precedent for understanding baptism in some way. And what we're seeing here in Colossians, I hope I've conveyed, and I, I believe I'm right in this exposition, is that what Paul's saying about being filled in Christ necessitates that one already have been redeemed. Everything we've looked at in 2, 9 through 15 assumes that you've already repented and believed and that you have been made a new creation. And so what we're looking at here in Colossians 2, the connection between what is talked about with circumcision and the connection, therefore, to baptism afterward. I don't believe these things can be said of an infant. Because this is baptism of faith. That's built on the idea that you've been circumcised in your heart through the spirit you've been baptized into. So Colossians 2 is oftentimes laid out to say that there's a connection, and certainly there is a connection, but we should not say that baptism is directly the new circumcision. That does not make sense of the language here and, and the, the other connections Paul's making to these ideas. So... Um, if you flip back with me to Colossians chapter, or sorry, to Galatians chapter three, Galatians is a letter that is really prominently dealing with this idea of circumcision, and you have this group called the Judaizers that are saying that you might have begun in Christ, but you need to complete that work, you need to add to that work, by adding circumcision onto it. And that's legalism. They're, they're saying that Christ is not sufficient, but we believe in Christ alone. 
And so Paul is addressing that issue. He's addressing this issue specifically around the idea of circumcision. And his answer to this is not to just say that baptism is the new circumcision, therefore you don't have to be circumcised. If that were the reality, this literally could have been the shortest book that Paul wrote. He could have said, Dear Galatians, baptism is the new circumcision, so cut it out. Please excuse the bad pun. But he does give an answer, and I want to show that answer, and I want to make a point about the ordering of that answer as we see it in Galatians. So there's a few places you could go for the answer, but it's sufficient to say there's an answer here, and then what's going to come later is a discussion about baptism. So let me show what I'm looking at here. So if you'll just look with me at Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The answer is not, go get circumcised and make yourself the true seed of Abraham. He's going to go on to say, there's only one true seed of Abraham. That is Jesus. And how you become part of Abraham's household is through faith. A work that is through the promised Holy Spirit that we have received. So again, this is a synonymous idea with spirit baptism that's laid out here in 3, 13, and 14. And one of the things I hope that's, that's been conveyed here is that as you look at Romans 2 going into Romans 6, as we look at Colossians 2.11 going into Colossians 2.12, and what we're seeing here at, at this uh, middle portion of Galatians 3, and what we're going to see at the end of Galatians 3, is that this discussion of the answer to circumcision always comes before a discussion of baptism. Why that's important is you have to receive heart circumcision, the fulfillment of circumcision through the Spirit, before you are baptized to say that you've been baptized in the Spirit. There's an ordering to this every single time that we've looked at this. And that I think that matters. So if you'll look with me at the end of Galatians chapter 3, verse 25 says, But now the faith, sorry, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all through faith. So there you go. There's a statement about becoming a son of God, being adopted in God's family, and the means is through faith. And then what does he say next? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Faith leading into baptism after he's already discussed the presence of the Spirit in the people of God. This ordering matters, and it conveys that baptism always assumes regeneration by the Spirit. And again, I, I'm going to say something that can sound strong, but I, I want to caveat it. I, I don't think that our Reformed Presbyterian brothers are guilty of heresy. But I do want to point out, while we're here looking at Galatians quickly, that there has been a there have been errors and problems throughout church history related to reaching back into the Old Covenant to grab things that we're not supposed to grab and bring forward. With, with the Judaizers, they were doing so in a way that led to a different gospel. With our Reformed Presbyterian brothers, I think the parameters they're pulling from Genesis 17 to put onto baptism is not of the same level of error, but it is the same sort of error. The same sort of pulling back and bringing forward that we should not do um, without any sort of scriptural precedent. So to say where it would be fitting, we've always been called to love the Lord our God and love our neighbors ourselves. We see that clearly, and it clearly continues. We have explicit precedent for that. We don't have anything from here that I've seen that's explicitly um, taking the parameters of Genesis 17 to put them onto baptism. And in fact, what I've been trying to argue is that what... What we're seeing here, especially in these Pauline epistles, is the exact opposite. So what we'll do now is we're going to discuss the term baptism. And I'm not going to – so if you'll go over to Matthew 3 with me. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the actual word for baptism. If you look at the New Testament and the ancient Greek, um, sources that use the word as well. It's pretty clearly immersion. And 
I understand if people want to discuss that. If you want to hear more about that term, you're welcome to, um, I, I can recommend different sources. Uh, James White does do a really good job talking about the usage of the verb um, or and the words associated with it. So I can give you that resource if you'd like to hear more about this, but we have a limited amount of time, and so I'm just not going to focus on this because I think it's pretty clear. Uh, we see the same sort of idea of it being immersion in the early church, like when you look at the Didache. And even some of the reformers like Calvin admitted that usage of the word is clearly pertaining to immersion. So I just don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I don't think it's worth our, our while. But certainly we can still have discussions about it. Um, but what I want to do now is I want to focus on Matthew 3 and look at John's baptism and consider how it informs our understanding of baptism. Um, and I, I hadn't originally thought to do something like this, and James White did, and I thought that was really helpful. So we're going to take a whack at it and, and, and try to understand from the earliest stages of, of the New Testament narrative what did baptism mean, and then how does that inform our baptism. So Matthew 3. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is gonna, we're going to build on this point going forward. John is this voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. In the Hebrew, that's Yahweh, make his path straight. And the one he's preparing the way for is Jesus Christ. So here, early on, clear statement, Jesus is Yahweh. The one who's coming, who is the way, is Jesus. We'll have more to say about Jesus' divinity and more to say about theology proper as we go forward. For now, verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So just two quick notes uh, from what we're seeing here. One is they're going out to a river, a big body of water. If this was sprinkling, it could have been a lot more convenient. But they, they needed to go out to a whole body of water because of the dynamic of immersion. Point number two is this baptism, and there's different discussion about some of the uh, precedent for John's baptism and what that might mean, but I, I think the clearest thing that we should just focus on here is from verse 6. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. They were confessing their sins. He was telling them that they were in sin. You look at the last um, prophets in the minor prophets, you look at this in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people had come out of Babylon but they were still in exile because Babylon had not come out of them. They needed someone to liberate them from their sin. So John's making this clear to them, and they're confessing and agreeing with him and repenting. Now let's go forward. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? in keeping with repentance. And do not assume, or sorry, sorry, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What I want to point out from these verses is that you have this group these Pharisees and Sadducees who are coming to his baptism, and you see that? They're not allowed. They're rebuked. And why? Because they're not repentant. John's baptism required demonstrable repentance. The question is, does Jesus? Does Jesus require with his baptism repentance? Let's, let's look forward and see what, what, what we see here in Matthew 3. John says in, in verse 11, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, who sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John has just stated plainly, 
that his baptism of repentance is lesser than the baptism Jesus is going to do. So if the lesser requires repentance, the greater must require repentance and more. And the more is made clear. He said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. For those who are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, they have to be recipients of the Holy Spirit. Their baptism in the Holy Spirit is the precedent for their baptism in water. They have to receive the living waters of the Spirit before they can ever enter into the baptismal waters. It requires both repentance and regeneration. That's what John's conveying to us here. And we see a similar dynamic in Acts 19, which I'm going to summarize now quickly, but if you want to look later, Acts 19, you see this dynamic where some of John's disciples somehow did not stay in Judea long enough to understand who Jesus was and that he was the one John was preparing the way for. But when they have to be baptized again. And there's no shift to say that they don't need to repent this time. It's no, they their repentance is right, but they now need to put their faith in the one who is to come, Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is through a work of the Spirit. So we see that expansive concept that I'm trying to lay out here as you look at Acts 19. So I'm sorry, I just have to keep moving. Um, and if you want to talk to me about it later, I'm glad to talk about that more later as well. But for now, let's keep moving in Matthew 3. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So up until this point in Matthew's gospel, he's been showing how Jesus has been reliving the life of Israel. He quoted in Matthew 2 uh, from Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I have called my son. That original son was Israel. Jesus is reliving Israel's life, but the difference is he's doing it in obedience. And so Jesus is coming here to be baptized by John, not for repentance, but because he is there to fulfill all righteousness and to identify with those who need to repent. He is coming to take the judgment they deserve. And to, to convey that point that I think Matthew's laying out for us, look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So, I don't know if you've ever been in this spot. I have been in this spot before. You're reading this, this account, and the question that always came up to me is, why is the Spirit descending as a dove? That's always been something that I just I didn't understand. And what I want to convey here, as I mentioned earlier, there is a connection between the flood and what happens in baptism. That's laid out in 1 Peter 3, um, but I think we're seeing that as well here. At the flood is the dove that's sent out, and then after seven days shows that God has again brought out dry ground for the people to come out of the ark. And we see a similar dynamic in the Exodus, the flood, and in the original creation. In each of these accounts, water is conveying something that's less than ideal. At creation, there's water, and the Spirit is there hovering over the deep, but the earth is without form and void. There's chaos. That's how those words are used in the rest of the Old Testament. Obviously, at the flood, what does the water do? It conveys judgment on these wicked people who had forsaken God. What does the water do at the crossing of the Red Sea? It brings judgment on Pharaoh's army for their hatred of God's people. And we see this idea of water conveying judgment, of baptism being tied to judgment from Jesus' own words. Mark 10, 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here, we're seeing Christ in his identification with sinners and fulfilling all righteousness on their behalf, saying, I will both fulfill, and I'm going to take those floodwaters of judgment they deserve on myself. And I think that is exactly why the Spirit descends as a dove, to show that Jesus himself is going to be the deliverance 
for his people. You see, in all these instances, Exodus, flood, creation, there's water. There's something hovering. We talked about the spirit hovering over the waters in creation, the, the, the dove hovering here, the pillar of cloud hovering at the Red Sea when the people are going to cross. You see the same idea where that presence of God causes dry ground to come forward in each of those stories so that God's people are delivered through. But these are just types. This is the substance what we're reading here in Matthew 3. Look at verse 17. It says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Adam was made in the likeness of God. He was supposed to be a son to God. No mission is Adam, but fails like Adam did. Israel was called, like we talked about from Hosea 11.1. He was called out of Egypt as God's son, telling Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go, that he may serve me. And what we're seeing here, and what we see in the Old Testament, is that it's ultimately the, the Davidic son, 2 Samuel 7, David's going to have a son who will be a son to God. And he is going to be the one who actually is a faithful son to God, an obedient son to God. And what we're seeing here, behold, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved And it's because this is the true son. This is God the son come incarnate to bring deliverance to his people. He, by his own sacrifice of himself as their Passover lamb, will bring about a better exodus for them. He, by taking the judgment for them, will deliver them in a better way than the ark did. And because of this and his resurrection, he's going to bring them into a new and better creation than what Adam experienced before the fall. This is what Christ is going to do, and he is there to fulfill all righteousness on their behalf. And indeed, just as the creation itself was a work of the triune God, the Father creating by his word through the Spirit, here we see the Father proclaiming his pleasure over the Son by the Spirit's descent on him. This is now going to inform what we look at here at the end of our time together in Matthew 28. So if you'll flip over with me to the end, and I promise we'll wrap up here. So in Matthew 28, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Satan tried to tempt Jesus with this sort of authority, but Jesus actually has gained this authority by conquering Satan, by following the Father. This conquering king is the reigning king. And what does the reigning king say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, here again we're seeing that the new creation work that Jesus does in his people is Trinitarian. There's one name, this one name that we're baptized into, but it's the name, one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And within this verse, this triune work of God is shown specifically on, we're seeing who this triune work of God applies to specifically. It gives us the indicators about who Jesus is talking about. And who's he talking about? Disciples. A disciple is one who learns and follows his teacher. Additionally, so I think that's a point that needs to be reckoned with with this idea of baptism. Baptism requires that you be a disciple, a student, a follower of the teacher, but also the, what it means to be baptized. Baptizing them in the name. What does it mean to be baptized in the name of? That's something that's really important to discuss, and I, and I, and I don't know that it's discussed as much as it perhaps should be. So what does it mean? It means to submit to the headship and lordship of the one you are under. We saw this idea when we were going through Deuteronomy 5. Do not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. They were supposed to be a faithful, Israel was supposed to be a faithful covenant bride to God, bearing his name in such a way that conveyed his glory by actually obeying and imitating him. So to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit means you are willfully submitting to the lordship of God. You have to be a disciple. You have to be submitting willfully to Christ's lordship to be baptized. And what we discussed this last week. As we proclaim the gospel, we are not telling people to make Jesus their Lord. We are telling that people Jesus already is their Lord. That's not the question. He is their Lord. The question is, is he their Savior? 
And is are they submitting to him as their Lord? And this, uh, this runs right in line with what you see in Romans 6. The, the ongoing discussion from what we were talking about from Romans 6, it starts with this idea of baptism, and then what does it immediately uh, uh, flow into? It flows into a discussion of being slaves to righteousness. Why? Because they are under the lordship of Christ, the one who has made them righteous. So being baptized in the name of conveys a willful submission to lordship. And obviously, this cannot be applied to a baby who is not demonstrating repentance, a submission to the teacher, and a submission to Christ's lordship. And as much as I'd love for all of us to just come to the same conclusions about baptism, I, I want us to see something greater through all of this, which is namely the glory of God. So verse 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are to teach disciples to observe everything Christ has commanded them, but just as we saw from Deuteronomy 10, God's commands are for our good. He's with us even to the end of the age. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And how is this reality? Because we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the living God through the Spirit. So truly, he will never leave us or forsake us. Because John makes it explicit. We have that Spirit forever. Christ is in us by the Spirit. And we will never be alone. Baptism is conveying who our Lord is and the fact that our Lord is with us and that we have been made a new creation in him. And so if I can just give two quick points of application, one of them being that Christ has made us holy, therefore we should walk in holiness. That's the point of Romans 6. You've been made holy. It is a joy and privilege to therefore walk in holiness because Christ has done that work for you and the commands he's now given you are for your good. And the other point I want to make quickly is that as we live the Christian life, even in dark days, even as there might be dark circumstances quickly coming upon us, that's not the end. Your baptism proclaims that you've been made a new creation, and Christ is going to return, and he is going to resurrect us, and whatever happens to us now isn't going to be the end of this story. We will live forever with our God in glory, seeing him face to face. And I hope that our discussion of baptism is helping us to see more clearly the glory of God, that we more, might more faithfully worship him accordingly.